You're listening to the Clean Sailors Podcast, all about sea, marine, sailing, and keeping it clean. I'm your host, Holly, founder of Clean Sailors and a sailor myself with a passion for the health of our mighty oceans. In our podcast, we explore some of the areas in which sailing and our wider marine industry can become that bit cleaner. Through conversations with experts, innovators, inventors, and activists, all working towards improving the health of our seas, we showcase the people and projects changing the way things are done. In this episode, we're speaking about the importance of cetaceans, fancy and correct name for whales and dolphins, the importance of cetaceans to our global ecosystem, what impact we're having on them and what we can be doing to help protect them even when out on the water. Now, for many of us sailors and seafarers, the sheer delight and wonder of seeing dolphins and more rarely whales is just awe-inspiring. I'm sure many of you can relate to dolphins bouncing around your bow, keeping pace with your boats, and in some instances, accompanying you for minutes and even hours on your seafaring adventures. For me, well, from fin whales and humpbacks, I've been fortunate enough to sight these incredible creatures whilst many miles offshore, moments I'll truly never forget. Being accompanied into harbour after a week-long non-stop voyage is one of nature's most wonderful tonics, transporting me away from the fact that A, I've probably not showered in days, B, definitely not slept for more than two hours at a time, and C, I'm probably hungry. Now, few things in life can make me forget any of those, but these awesome creatures always seem to. Now, not only are cetaceans, whales and dolphins, not only are they incredibly intelligent, incredibly intuitive, and incredibly important to the balance of our marine ecosystem, and therefore our planetary ecosystem, whales in particular are exceptional agents in carbon capture and storage. Yeah, exceptional agents in carbon capture. So let's talk about trees and whales for just two minutes. Bear with me. So planting trees is an effective way to capture carbon. A tree needs to be roughly 10 years old or so before it starts removing carbon from our atmosphere, but nevertheless does a good job soaking up about 48 pounds of carbon from our air each year thereafter. Now for you on the metric system or our European listeners, that's about 21 kilograms a year that one tree can take out of that atmosphere. But whales, well, they soak up about 33 tonnes of carbon through their lifetimes each. Absolutely extraordinary. Today, I'm joined by Liz Sanderman, co-founder of Marine Connection, who, after her work being campaigning against and successfully closing down the last dolphinariums in the UK, set up Marine Connection to continue her work in protecting these awesome marine creatures. For over two decades, her charity has been dedicated to the protection, conservation and welfare of dolphins, whales and porpoises around the world. Also joining us is Katie Dyke of WDC, Whales and Dolphin Conservation, an organisation also working worldwide to protect whales and dolphins in the places where they live, breed and feed. So let's find out more about cetaceans, whales and dolphins, and how we sailors, yachties and seafarers can help protect them. Liz, what do you see as being the most prevalent or the biggest issues that humans are having on, on whales and dolphins today? Well, I mean, there's many sort of different threats that negatively influence, you know, the survival of dolphins and whales in oceans worldwide. I know it's only one ocean, you know, but, you know, without question, the biggest threat globally is definitely net entanglement. I mean, there's various threats, you know, you have like shipping noise, you have military activities, even whale watching can affect the, you know, having a, an impact on, on the animals. But, you know, without question, as I say, really, it's it's bycatch, net entanglement, you know, be it sort of, you know, the trawlers, the smaller inshore fisheries, such as, you know, lobster pot ropes. Definitely that's the biggest. I mean, we're talking about at least 300,000 whales, dolphins, porpoises are killed each year due to fishing. 
And I personally think we could probably add at least another 100,000 to that figure because there's going to be many deaths that go unaccounted for. So definitely net entanglement. Huge numbers you're talking Absolutely. I mean, you know, a marine connections concern, it's not really just, you know, it's not from a conservation point of view where it actually affects the population figures to dwindle because, you know, for example, the vaquita, you know, in the Sea of Cortez in Mexico is, is on the edge of extinction. And, you know, we're talking about 20 vaquitas left globally, which is just extremely scary. And these animals, you know, it's basically they're losing their lives due to gill nets. Bycatch is described as the incidental capture of non-target species such as dolphins, whales, turtles, seabirds. And where there's commercial fishing, there is always bycatch. This is where, you know, as I say, you know, marine species such as dolphins and whales, they get tangled in fishing gear. And it's not necessarily just actual large fishing nets, but it could be lobster trail uh, ropes, for example, when species such as humpback whales are swimming close to shore and they actually get entangled in the ropes. And this is known as bycatch. That's described as incidental bycatch, but then you've actually got the issue of deliberate capture of dolphins in various fishing gear, such as per se nets in some countries, including Costa Rica, where for many years, fishermen, when they deploy the large nets, they deploy them around an entire school of, say, for example, tuna fish which are known to swim with spinner and spotted dolphins. And the net is drawn in like a purse with the dolphins also trapped. So this is actual deliberate capture. Once you've obviously captured these dolphins, just get caught and it's sort of dragged on board that, you know, there's only a matter of time you've got before they can be returned to the water safely and alive. Imagining, like you said, a lot of them pass away before they even get to that stage. No, absolutely. So there's no monitoring. And I mean, it's even like, you know, the the fishing vessels in the UK. I mean, the majority, if any, have, have no cameras on board. So we don't really know, you know, exactly what's happening in the waters, you know, when the big fishing vessels are going out. And as, as, as I said before, it's not even commercial fisheries that are the problem. You can get inshore fisheries where, you know, you get little gill nets or anything. And once again, they could be catching, you know, porpoises. So it's not necessarily always large fishing nets. Often we think and appreciate we're talking to a global audience right now, but often we think that there are other nations, there's sort of over there nations that are conducting these kind of practices which have collateral damage. But you're right, I mean, not just the UK, but I think even France in particular has been highlighted over the last couple of years for between 6,000 and 10,000 dolphins killed every year just by these sort of large industrial sort of trawlers and sort of vessels fishing in pairs with them, so dragging the nets between the two trawlers, you know, and that obviously is to catch as much as possible. But, you know, naturally there are other things in the water than than just the things that fishermen want to catch for us to eat. Absolutely. And then, I mean, even then you've obviously got, you know, you've got the, the bycatch of other fish species that shouldn't be getting caught in the net. And sadly, whether people think they're just fish or not, they also lose their lives and they're just tossed overboard you know, the public want fish on their plate, Mm. you know. And while we're asked to, you know, we we get asked regularly about sustainability, but that's really more towards whether the fish stocks are well managed and they're at a sustainable source. Mm. You know, it's like seafood products that carry a sustainable fishing certification, you know, or a dolphin safe label. Well, they can never really guarantee that they're 100% guarantee that their, their fishing techniques haven't caused the death of a dolphin, a whale, a porpoise, a shark, a sea turtle oh. in the process, you know, so... Because who would also want to report it? I mean, with the best possible intention, it's, you know, having these kind of governance frameworks around the kind of fish we eat 
are useful to some extent. The intention is useful, but actually the actuality and the practicality of, as you mentioned, ensuring that they work, ensuring that people are reporting. Because dare I say it, if, I mean, none of us like to admit when we've done something wrong. So, so being able to sort of put your hand up and say, sorry, we've caught, managed to catch a thousand dolphins in our net this year. We can't put that stick yeah. on our fish. I mean, it's just not yeah. going to happen, is it? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's like everything else, you know, whether, you know, it's at the end of the, it's the end product that people are maybe seeing depending on the fish that they actually buy. They're not actually seeing, and with that sanding over the top, they're not actually seeing, you know, the extra death that's basically... Mm. on their plate because they're just basically you know buying you know that piece of fish really even further on the sort of fishing side I mean obviously bycatch is one area you mentioned but you know there's a lot of waste within the fishing and the commercial fishing industries isn't there in terms of fishing lines ghost nets lobster pots just being dumped in the water obviously these nets undergo huge stress and huge strain and more often than not these days are made of plastic fibers just because of the strength of them but you know we're seeing these huge kind of bergs collecting in parts of the ocean Mm. just islands of fishing nets and the very nature of a fishing net is to catch and kill and just because they're not you know hanging off the side of a boat or off the end of a line doesn't mean they're still not doing their job and and these these nets are ongoing in their effectiveness for decades, right? I mean... Oh, no. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's why, you know, bycatch, I mean, it's got all sorts of threats really on dolphins, whales and marine life. And then, and this is the issue of ghost nets. You know, I mean, we call them the silent killers because they are commercial fishing nets, which are actually abandoned, deliberately discarded at sea, lost, you know. And it is just one of, you know, not all fishermen, but some fishermen, you know, it's one of the most easiest ways to get rid of their fishing nets. They basically just dump them on board and then they're really, in a way, not more deadly, but they're just as deadly as any commercial you know fishing net that's out in the ocean then being you know reeled in because these ghost nets they just drift for miles and miles in ocean currents and they entangle anything in the path and And not only I guess they just keep going you know where you're sort of casting a net trawling it back into the boat and heading home I mean appreciate you're doing that obviously the fishing community is a constant community and it's ongoing but you know, these nets are staying in, in the marine environment for decades, if not potentially uh, hundreds of years, right? Yeah, yeah, or possibly even thousands of years, which might sound a little bit over the top, but, you know, literally they could last for thousands of years, really. And as I say, not only are they actually, you know, entangling anything that get in, you know, that's in their path, they also, you know, they get caught on reefs, they destroy hard and soft corals. They wipe out complete ecosystems, mm-hmm. you know, so they're pretty deadly as well. And the most sort of common type of ghost net really is the gill net. They're also referred to as the drift net. Very difficult to track once they're in, discarded in the ocean. And it's really, even though that we know roughly, probably being realistic, around about 350,000 dolphins, whales and porpoises are killed every year. And that's really the numbers that we know about. Mm. Ghost nets, it's pretty impossible to come to any conclusion how many ghost nets there are out there in the oceans or even calculate how many dolphins and whales are killed each year. So we're talking about, you know, huge numbers you know, and then of course, and, don't, and people, what people don't realize, well, some people don't realize, as you've just previously mentioned, that, you know, fishing nets, you know, quite a lot of them are made of plastic. So even ghost nets make up the majority of large plastic pollution in the oceans, mm. you know. So, you know, plastic pollution is a really, you know, it's, it's a huge concern as well, really, plastic pollution in the ocean. So, as I say, not only have we got the fishing nets that are maybe being discarded, then you've got, you know, the double whammy is the fact that it's contributing to plastic pollution in the ocean as well. And all of that's just breaking down into, as we know, microplastics and microfibers, which are even harder to track than obviously big nets. I mean, the thing that I find incredibly surprising, I mean, is that there is 
there is obviously very little incentive, if any incentive, for fisher men or commercial fishing organisations or companies to return their nets to shore. And I think that's, if there was a secondary market, so to speak, for discarded nets or overused nets, then there must be some sort of way in which we can close that loop to stop them from being waste, right? Because if it's cheaper, I mean, these things are huge and they are so heavy. I mean, any kind of sort of roping is is heavy, even on sort of a boat, but these Mm. nets are just colossal. And therefore, if it is broken or they've got holes in it or just tatted or it gets caught on something whilst you're fishing and it's easier to discard... I mean, it's it's the cheapest, most feasible option for anyone who's in the fishing community, right? Why would they return them to shore other than the sort of moral and environmental obligation? And do you feel that there's an opportunity or a requirement, therefore, for us to, this new market to kind of arise in which they either can be sold or made into something else or subsidised in order to help minimise marine litter and close that kind of gap in the system? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I mean, especially, I mean, unfortunately, you know, you know, where there's fishing, I mean, nets will be lost. But if fishermen are deliberately dumping their nets, then, you know, it's them that has the responsibility. It's them that are going out, you know, earning financially from the oceans. And they have that moral obligation of making sure that they're basically just not, you know, using the oceans as a dumping ground. Mm. Just to probe a little bit further, obviously, on the issue of, say, ghost nets, I was, you always, I think, it's very easy to think, I mean, we avoid lobster pots at all costs when we're on our boats and sailing. You don't want to get one of those wires, mm. sort of ropes wrapped around your propeller or your keel. Yeah. They're a hassle, a real nightmare, and quite hard to spot. Psychologically, you may think a lobster pot is probably two hands wide, And it's obviously got a a rope that attaches the floating buoy all the way down to the seabed where the basket sits. Mm. That's tiny in comparison to a whale. How can something like that kill a whale? And I can, it's, it's very easy to imagine that the sort of just the proportions don't make sense when you're talking about sort of loss and death in the ocean, but these ropes are getting attached around the fins, whether it's the dorsal fin or the actual any sort of part of or appendage of a, of a whale and actually keeping them underwater. A humpback whale last, last week only, you know, off the coast of Vancouver Island was literally freed from hundreds of metres of fishing line. And it was so entangled and it was like, it was some kind of lobster pot. So it had like, you know, the rope to the pot, then up to the, the buoy. It was so entangled, this poor humpback whale, that the actual whale, it wasn't under the water, but it was anchored. Basically, it was it was entangled in the rope, which was anchored to the ocean floor. Wow. So it couldn't move. The whale couldn't move. As mammals, as you've rightly pointed out to me on several occasions, like these are mammals, so they're the same, same way as we do. They need to breathe air. So if you're if they are anchored underwater for a prolonged period of time and can't access the surface to breathe, then we are killing them. There's a new study, actually, that I'd quite like to chat about that has just recently been published. And funnily enough, it, it looked at several data on several decades on the North Atlantic right whales. And this is North Atlantic right whales is, I take a great interest in because it is a species that really is, you know, I think the latest figures are showing that there's something like 365 of the North Atlantic right whales left. Mm -hmm. There was 500 of these in 2010 and now we've got 365. And out of that population, there's only 70 breeding females. Wow. So if these females get caught and they get killed or they you know, sustain severe injuries and they don't go on to produce a calf, then in another 10 years, you know, we can turn around and have 200 North Atlantic right whales. Mm. And that's quite scary to think that, you know, we're basically wiping out a whale species. And this new study, which was on the North Atlantic right whales, has shown that the whales, these specific whales, the, the species, 
are growing to be about three feet shorter than they were 40 years ago. And it's all down to entanglement mm-hmm. and in rope and commercial fishing gear. And it's the actual stress that these animals, these whales, from dragging heavy gear for dozens of miles through the oceans, that what it's doing, it's actually, it's diverting, you know, it's taking up all their energy that it's diverting away from their growth and their their reproduction you know and if you yeah and if you have a female right whale that's entangled and she's you know she's produced a young calf and she's busy feeding the calf you know and she's entangled in fishing gear and she's having to drag this behind her that's a huge problem for nursing you know it's it's a huge problem to for, for you know while nursing and, and producing these calves. So it's quite interesting that the Atlantic right whales are slightly smaller than they were 40 years ago. It's incredibly, it is fascinating, but it's also, I find it incredibly alarming. And I remember too reading this study and I mean, that's a reduction, I think of like 7% of each of us as human beings reducing in size over this 20 year period. And mm. to your point, it's kind of, I guess there's a, the effect is duplicitous because you've got, the sort of mother having to drag this behind her. So like if I was to tie a, I don't know, a sandbag around my way mm. to keep it there for for years, I'd probably get pretty skinny just by burning up energy and not having, mm-hmm. you know, enough, enough kind of energy to source my food. But also then feeding young, my energy is depleting, my resources are depleting, and therefore I'm less able to pass on the full maximum healthy nutrition that I'd need to in order for my calf then to be a full healthy happy sized whale too right so Mm. it's impacting perhaps the individual's growth or stunting that individual's growth but also as you sort of mentioned as a larger pod the effect then has on reducing the overall healthiness of that pod over time yes Mm. Mm. and if a female does go on and, and you know she obviously mates well, she eventually, you know, if her body's not in good condition, she's not going to carry that calf, mm. you know, to its full term. So, you know, that's another concern as well. And it's really the consumers that have the power. Think about the impact that that fish on your plate has had on marine life. And I always say, you know, I think as much as, you know, people like to eat their fish, you know, to me, I think everyone really has to be an ethical shopper in an ideal world <laughs> it's not my ideal world but you know in an ideal world I would have everyone stop eating fish not maybe everyone in every country depending on the population and where that population lives Definitely. yeah and I think there is there is a real positive narrative isn't there because I think we can get a bit stuck on the doom and gloom of, of mm we have done but there is such a positive narrative that change can happen you know let's look at covid we have all rapidly adapted to lockdown to the last year of everybody's lives and we can do that for the environment as well and i i because i work on a community project i see it time and time again people standing up for the marine environment making their voices heard and we all have the power to do that and i i I do see there's a possibility of change so there is a positive narrative there too in 1997 there was 600 approximately 600 vikita porpoises and as i say now there's less than 20 It's incredibly embarrassing in some ways, right? I mean, aside from a couple of nations in the world, I mean, I think Iceland and obviously Japan, who actively whale and sort of undertaken whale hunting still, no other nations or, or most other nations don't partake in that sort of activity. So we're literally killing that many by virtue of other activities and indirectly in some respect, because, you know, commercial fishing is after fish. So all of these sort of nonsensical collateral deaths in that sense just being caught by us perhaps not developing sort of good enough systems but also paying enough attention to just how important these species are I think I mean obviously it's called an incidental bycatch but you know I mean it, it just can't be avoided you know where there's fishing nets literally there are dolphin and whale deaths and also I just I just thought I'd mention that Norway also carry out whaling but there are other countries that carry out whaling and we mustn't forget this you know the states they also carry out whaling and not many people 
are aware of this. And then you've got various Caribbean countries that also carry out whaling. Why is that, Liz? I mean, appreciating in some countries it's sort of an age-old tradition, but is that because they're seen as a threat to other fish stocks or a pest or a nuisance? Or is it because they themselves have, have got raw materials within them that are super useful for whatever industry is carried on in these countries? I think within, you know, some countries, I, I definitely think countries, I mean, Iceland's really stopped their, their whaling, which has been, you know, obviously we welcome. Norway in the past, off the top of my head, in the past six weeks has killed 43 minke whales as part of their quota for this year's season. And then, as I say, you've got the, in the States, they continue the, the whaling. Caribbean, you know, they'll, they'll catch the odd humpback whale, even if a killer whale comes in, they'll still cut it up and use their meat. So, yeah, but I definitely think some of the countries, they put it down to it's their tradition. You know, even though it's not whaling and it's drive hunts, it's like the Faroe Islands. I mean, recently, I can't remember the exact figures, but we're talking about dozens of pilot whales. And they just kill hundreds per year. And the way that I think about it, it's not really their whales. You know, the whales don't belong to anyone. It's almost, well, it's their ocean before it was ours in that sense. I mean, whether it's whales, dolphins, or even sharks, I mean, these species have been around for millions of years, evolutionarily, which is a lot longer than we have. And in some ways makes it all the more sad that we sort of come along and are undertaking even not just one. I mean, you mentioned bycatch, but in sort of ghost nets, but there's a couple of other ways, obviously, that we're having a sort of detrimental impact to their livelihood communities and I say that because these as we mentioned are a super intelligent species right and you know often the way that we are impacting them is their very ability to communicate shipping obviously is incredibly noisy in the oceans and what impact is is noise pollution in the sea having on these kind of creatures in particular well, it was quite interesting, actually, because, I mean, I worked with various colleagues globally and, I mean, 2020 was the quietest year for the world's oceans in, in recent memory, you know, simply due to the pandemic. And I'm at the age, OK, I wasn't actually, you know, born in 1956, but I remember watching a, a documentary about Jacques Cousteau, you know, when he made a documentary and he called the oceans the silent world. But nowadays, in reality, you know, it's, it's a much noisier place. We've got, you know, thousands of ships and commercial shipping and, you know. So, yes, no, it's, it's a much noisier place for, for all marine life. And they're having to go about their daily, daily life, having to avoid ships or having military sonar. And, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's a much noisier ocean. I mean, Marine Connection for many years has been a working member of the, there's an underwater sound forum, which is one of the UK government's committee. And I personally sit on that. And what that committee does, it just really investigates the effects of underwater sound on dolphins, whales, you know, and even other marine life such as fish. I think last year had, as you mentioned, such a profound impact, good and bad. In, in many respects but to your point about investigating the impact on these species and sort of sound pollution I mean I speak for myself here but even when you're working in an environment where there's noisy background whether it's you know, outside of building works or there's music or there's some other distraction I mean there is an inherent level of stress which you feel I think all of us actually reset, feel more relaxed and actually more productive in a quieter environment. And obviously for us, we have often a bit of choice about how long we're exposed to that. But for species who rely on sound, perhaps more importantly than, than many other senses, such as sight, in an environment as big as the ocean, it almost feels like this is, is more disruptive than any of us have appreciated so far. Oh, no, I mean, absolutely. I mean, with regards to, you know, cetaceans, I mean, noise, it really limits their ability, you know, to sort of contact, you know, have social contact with each other, ability to, you know, find a mate. It's, it's, it's really a huge, huge impact. And the other kind of, I mean, as I say, there's, there's various sources of noise, but last year we were invited there's a new campaign called the stop sea blast campaign and that's just another source of noise it's led by joanna lumley and basically what it is is marine connection was invited to support the campaign 
to help raise awareness about the way that unexploded ordnance is being blown up in UK waters and British waters. And it's all to do with War One and Two bombs that are actually being cleared for the construction of offshore wind farms. And this has been going on for years and years and years. And basically what how the bomb they blow up the bombs which create a huge blast which is known to have a huge effect on dolphins and whales and other marine life. You know, it could be fish, it could be seals. And in 2011, in Scotland, 39 long fin pilot whales stranded and died due to nearby bomb disposal operations. And the government did acknowledge this was what caused them to strand and die. You're talking also about perhaps almost like historical bombs and bomb disposal from from the world wars. But surely there's testing going on all over the world, whereby the sort of marine environment, because it's still seen to be big and, you know, things disappear when they get into the into the ocean, it's still being used as a testing ground for military weapons, drills, and also as a place of dumping. I mean, we recently saw in the news that some of the bywater from the Fukushima disaster was nuclear water was being dumped mm-hmm. obviously into the ocean too so is it is it over or is it just historical things or are there places in the world where this kind of marine noise is is ever prevalent and in some ways increasing because i mean the oceans are being used more and more each day you know in you know ship traffic is doubled between in the past what 60 70 years so, you know, as the background noise intensifies, then obviously that has to affect marine life. We've just teamed up with a Golden Globe sailor who's, who's involved in the 2022 race. And Marine Connections just joined or teamed up with him because he's, he's actually doing like a trial sail up to Iceland, then over to Greenland. And then he's reporting back to us not only what species he's seen, he's seeing on a daily basis off cetaceans, but any lost fishing gear, any plastic pollution. So that's a win-win situation. That brings us quite nicely to sort of what can, not just we as sort of as human beings on land or at sea do, but Katie, you're kind of with WDC, you're involved in sort of citizen science and actually have launched a recent project around what sailors in particular can be doing to help, if you like, watch and report on some cetacean species. Tell us a little bit more about that. And there is so much that we can do and particularly focus on sailing and people on the water. We might think that we have less of an impact on the marine environment because you know, me on my paddleboard, I don't have an engine. I'm just paddling along. And you guys on sail, sailing a lot of the time, you're probably not going to be under motor. You're going to be under sail. So you're not going to have that noise impact. But it might not be so obvious that we can still have that impact to whales and dolphins. So disturbing natural behaviours like feeding, breeding, socialising can all happen without that noise as well, particularly if we're in very important areas for them, like feeding areas. And so research does suggest that some of the smaller erratic boats can cause dolphins to leave important areas. And it's funny to think that sometimes those larger tankers have more of a predicted movement than kind of us on our smaller boats. And so the dolphins can actually predict where these tankers are going and understand, oh, actually, it's just going to be a passing moment, like you were saying before about humans, when we have noise around us, it's really frustrating. But if we know that it's going to be, you know, if it's a passing car and we know that that car's just going to keep going, we can get used to that sound and we know it's going to go past us. If it's a car doing donuts right next to us when we're trying to have our lunch, it's going to cause a big of an effect on us because we can't predict what that car is doing. And there have been other incidences where calves and mothers have been separated and even where strikes have been caused, causing death or serious injury. And us, like you said, as water users, have no doubt have a love for the environment and for the ocean environment particularly. And we can be ocean ambassadors. And 
as we've mentioned before, as the seas are getting noisier and busier, we have a greater responsibility to make sure that we're respecting the sea and following best practices as we can. The first thing I try to do is to keep my cool. It is an incredible experience, as you well know, to see well marine wildlife, and it is really easy to get overexcited and kind of forget about the welfare of the animals and your own safety for that matter. So it is important to think about the behavior of the dolphin, Often as sailors or me on my paddleboard, I've had so many instances where the dolphins have approached me. And so sometimes we can, it appears that they're loving bow riding with us and they're loving us going as fast as possible. But it's not always the case. Not all of the pods sometimes are engaging with us. And some individuals might be staying further away, particularly if calves are present. So it is really important to let the animal lead the encounter. And if some individuals are staying away, respect that space and don't approach them. And remember, if those animals that are interacting with you choose to leave, we should give them that choice and allow them to leave and not approach them. And so there are a few tips for having a great wildlife experience, but a few tips for having a great experience and making sure that the experience is good, not just for you, but for the animals as well, is to keep your distance. So avoid getting too close, especially if there's calf present. So we suggest staying about 100 metres away. Obviously, if the animals are approaching you, that's kind of impossible to do if they're bow riding on the front of your boat. But do be aware if there's calves present as well, it is better to keep a bit of a further distance and think about 200 meters if you are approaching do follow your steady course and if that means that you're approaching them do stay behind them where possible and only approach from their side and always try and think about where you're sitting in relation to the animals so are you on the landward side you don't want to be penning them in so being aware of the environment if they're in a shallower area you want to make sure that they have that space to escape And think about how many are already interacting with the animals. So three is a crowd. There should never be more than two boats within 300 meters of those animals. So to give them that space to leave if they want to. And, you know, like we were talking about us as humans, we don't want to be kind of continually, if we're having dinner out in the garden or whatever, we don't want cold callers phoning us every 10 minutes. And so be aware of how long you're staying as well. So if you are enjoying an encounter, try not to stay longer than 15 minutes. Most of the interactions I've had have been quite quick interactions. They've come to me, they've kind of checked me out and they've let, they've left again because I'm not in areas where they're feeding. But if it is an area where they're staying and it's an important area for them, our presence might inter- interfere with how long they can stay in that area. And avoid repeated disturbances. So consider staying away if the wildlife has already spent time with vessels nearby. And don't make any sudden changes to speed or direction. And do be aware, like I was saying, about the behaviour of the animals. Don't scatter groups. Don't split up mother and calves. Definitely don't chase them or repeatedly approach individuals. For you guys to help us support Rude to Intrude, our campaign, it would be fantastic if you can check out our website. So we've got a lot more information on our whales.org website forward slash disturbance. And you can follow our Facebook pages and we've got a hashtag called Rude to Intrude. And so you can you can find that and any interactions that you have or if you're posting pictures on Twitter or Facebook, if you can hashtag Rude to Intrude as well. So that then raises awareness of, of some of these best practices that we're talking about. Um, if you go on, I'll, yeah. No, I was going to say that's absolutely fantastic. And I think the, the Rude to Intrude is so sort of aptly put because you're right. I mean, it's no, in some ways, no different whether it's us or it's other creatures any other creatures and appreciating obviously just how important particularly sheltered areas are so particularly when we're looking as sailors and seafarers for mooring spaces or nice calm anchorages often these are nice and calm also used by other species for that very reason that they're safe to breed feed and also act as a nursery for you know bringing up their young so it's even more important in some ways that we we put on our rude to intrude hats and remember that their environments used by some of the you know the most awesome species on the planet in their sort of growing and, and feeding patterns regardless of what species we should be very mindful of the interactions that we're having to your point it's not nice to have people cold calling or knocking on your door or taking pictures and sort of following after you like a paparazzi so appreciating that's often what we can be doing when we're out on the waters 
also appreciating that actually coming across whales and dolphins are some of the most spectacular opportunities that we can have, actually, particularly as seafarers. And as I mentioned, they often come at the most opportune of times and always bring huge smiles to our faces. So it's really great to know better how to interact. As you said, letting them lead the encounter. They'll often come and investigate you and find you in your boat. But also to your point, being mindful of not pinning them in, separating them, being erratic, starting your engines, you know, revving it, changing direction or course too quickly just to keep the whole sort of situation a lot calmer. I have to say, I was saying to Liz, actually, just when we were talking pre-podcast that, I mean, some of the most, just literally the times in life that you'll remember most sort of just with crystal clarity are those times when you're literally, you know, on what I was saying to Liz, I had a Biscay trip a couple of years ago and I was on watch and it was a two-man trip. So it was two hours on, two hours off for about 10 days and you're tired and you're emotional and you're, everything's exhausting. And then you just have you know, having a quiet cry and then you just get this whole flurry of dolphins coming swimming beside you or a fin whale kind of just coming to check you out. And it is is mind-blowingly stunning, you know, and they're definitely, I hear lots of people talking about it and there's a, a lot of sailors who said that they just seem incredibly empathetic. There's something about, that. it was almost like they can feel you feel when you need it, you know, and yeah. there's something really about that. It's incredible. The culture of whales and dolphins is just fascinating. The more you start reading about culture of whales and mm. dolphins, you could just keep going for hours and hours. Like there's research that shows that humpback whales, so altruism, they show altruism. So we're some people say that we're the only species that can do something for another species. But there's been so many examples of particularly humpback whales kind of rescuing seals from orca yeah just looking after another species and ensuring their safety and yeah there's examples of of whales and dolphins helping out humans as well and keeping them safe from from predators absolutely fascinating and just goes to show again the importance of protecting them and ensuring the welfare and what you were saying earlier about taking out some individuals it's not just a population problem because there's such deep culture with these species if we take out you know we mentioned earlier 39 individuals if they were 39 individuals that were all mothers or all very important parts of the community it's going to have a massive impact on that part that resident population that's a really good point just like any species like we learn from our interactions and from our communication so if if you're losing key elements of that kind of ecosystem that society ecosystem particularly as you're growing up and for calves that understandably would have a massive impact on on their future and obviously the future not just for the pod but ultimately you know for some species as you mentioned there's 20 left so that has had disproportionate impact on on the future entirely of that species surviving if any of them are to sort of be eradicated so incredibly fascinating and I could honestly chew your ears off all day because I appreciate Mm. I've got so much to learn but just out of interest this is almost thinking a bit beyond even just this conversation but are there as species and as as sort of marine animals are there always the same kind of places that these whether it's whales or species of whales or dolphins that they use are there always places say for example around Scotland they use the same place the same time of year or is it are they a bit more opportunistic because appreciating they've got migratory patterns and otherwise across across the oceans and certainly around coastlines but are there places that are always not good to disturb it's going to be very different on species levels but also individual groups and populations so definitely within scotland we have seen with our resident population of bottlenose dolphins we have very clear places where they are definitely using at certain times of year particularly channonry point it's a really key feeding area and they they are seen there throughout the year but we see them in bigger numbers for longer periods of time over the summer and again aberdeen harbour but as the you know as they pass on different information to different individuals they're finding new spots as well and as their population grows they're expanding and finding new spots so i think we will always have those strongholds but i can envision more strongholds 
happening and more areas being found. And you know, we're already seeing humpback whales coming into waters. We haven't been seeing humpback whales in the past. And then we do have some instances where, you know, they're there for a particular food source. And one year that food source might change or go somewhere different. And so that, you know, it's happened in Norway a number of times where there's been a certain food source and then suddenly overnight that food source is gone. Mm -hmm. And this whole community of species that are reliant on that food source have shifted and moved. So, And also we will probably see a shift with climate change as well and different species having to find different areas to feed. I mean, just following on, you know, from Katie's conversation about the modified dolphins, it's been really interesting that some of the individuals are really moving out of the area for some time. I mean, you know, we've got Moonlight, who's in the Isle of Man, and she was a modified dolphin, and she's been there now for a couple of years. And we actually have around about seven or eight of the modified dolphins over in Denmark, and they've actually been there now for about a year. So it makes you wonder, will these animals actually come back? So going from a dolphin that was part of a population that we know that was part of a population to then becoming this habituated dolphin has been really interesting. And is that something, it strikes me, given that I understand, you know, dolphins to be quite social creatures, that they, you know, having their community of a pod is quite important, or certainly that's how we normally see them. Is a solitary dolphins quite rare? And is that an indication that they've either got lost or been kind of extradited for the group? Or is it, dare I say, a confidence and an independence that they just go off and do their own thing and adapt to new kind of communities and environments? I mean, we don't really know why a solitary dolphin will appear in an area. I mean, the UK, funnily enough, has actually had the most solitary dolphins globally. We've had, since the 60s, we've had around about 22 solitary dolphins. And then we have also had one solitary beluga whale in the River Thames back in 2018. So they're quite common solitary dolphins. Gosh. And I guess back to your point, Katie, in terms of or not obviously in some ways, but now you said it, it seems obvious, but there are various sort of interplays between environment and obviously the species. So whether it's climate change, whether it's us increasingly putting pressure on sort of coastal communities, whether it's through beaching, whether it's through water sports activities like paddling and surfing and jet skis and obviously pretty noisy and relatively erratic. So that obviously would have an impact as well as to where these animals return and how long they stay for and whether or not they more permanently shift either further offshore or to more remote areas, hey? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where, you know, maybe the paddleboarders, the kayakers, the swimmers, beachgoers might think that we're not having an impact where we will be having an impact as time goes on and more and more of us start getting onto the, onto the water, particularly in these important areas where, feeding and breeding and socializing is key and they're spending a long period of time and if we're driving them away from these really important habitats what kind of impact is that going to have on their success mm-hmm. and yeah I always feel that I don't think people mean to go out and disturb wildlife I think it is that that's that it's that joy that's excitement that these animals give us and it is just such a magical experience to see them like you were saying that the fin whale that you had about like on the bow of your boat and I think it is just a lack of understanding that we can have this impact I think when people have that kind of shift in their thought process to think oh actually yeah this yeah, of course, I don't want to be bombarded when I'm having my dinner. When we start thinking more about that, I think we'll hopefully see a change. I think that's absolutely key. And certainly, you know, I have an appreciation for these species. And I think to your point that when you do see them, there is an unparalleled joy and excitement because they're so rare in many instances. But actually, we have a responsibility, to your point earlier, to keep a distance and be respectful of them, mm. not just by virtue of them being other creatures, but just how important they are to our global ecosystem, the structure oh of our goodness. oceans, ultimately the, the sort of global food chain and all the way up to the impact on, on our actual climate, certainly when it comes yeah. to whales. So I can think of two, no two species better worth protecting than, than whales and dolphins in that respect. 
Yeah, just coming back to your point that you started on at the beginning of the podcast about how whales and dolphins and the marine environment itself are so important to regulate our carbon storage. You know, and I think what you said before, we look at trees and we can instantly see they're storing so much carbon. But because the sea is almost alien to a lot of us still, we don't get to experience the depths of the oceans, that we're kind of not fully understanding of how much that, how much of a resource that is. You know, this ocean, I think it's 25% of the carbon it stores in the ocean. And, you know, we're misusing the ocean and we we need to be careful of of how we use the ocean and what we're taking from it. And, you know, pre-whaling days, whales would have been storing huge amounts of carbon. And we've decimated so many populations to some populations up to 99% we've decimated, like the vaquita. And so we're taking, it's, you know, we can't visualize it so well. When we see the Amazon rainforest being taken down, we can visualize it. We can see, wow, that is that is devastating for for carbon storage. We can't visualize what's going on under the under the sea. But actually, the levels of whale biomass we've taken out of the ocean equates to countrywide sizes of, of forests. You know, mm. Mm. it's yeah. incredibly sad and it's almost quite scary but also I think just by virtue of these kind of conversations and being able to share this with others I mean this is what is super important about it and if if all of us can you know whether or not tag you guys in terms of where we're seeing things when we're out in the water and even in our own practices change the way that we're interacting with the the environment around us particularly when these species are around or not around to your point then I think that's that's the very first place for us to start I did forget to mention actually about where you guys can help as well. So the Shorewatch project that I run is shore-based sightings, but Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust run work on the West Coast. They run an app called Whale Track, and you can report, and that's more based on sightings out at sea. And so any sightings that you have, it's really important to get as much data and information of what's being seen out there. Like you were saying earlier about things are changing all the time, different species are popping up. So if you have any sightings, anything from a porpoise to a fin whale, you can add it to the whale track track app. And I'm sure globally there'll be other other incentives that you can you can find as well whilst you're going across the Atlantic yeah that's a great idea a really great idea and I think to your point about sailors I mean we're seeing more more people enter the world of sailing I mean it's become you know an awesome opportunity for a lot of people not to buy a house but actually to live aboard and go and sail around the world so in some ways we've even got even more of a responsibility to make sure as we're as our community is increasing that we're making sure that we're being as as keen and as healthy for our waters as possible but to your point this is also an opportunity for sort of citizen science to come into play and, and us to be able to feedback data to different organizations to plan efforts and to record sightings etc so great idea well listen both thank you so much again for your time yeah really lovely to meet you holly really yeah yeah no no pleasure absolute pleasure You've been listening to the Clean Sailors podcast. All relevant links to the projects and people we talk to can be found with the podcast link. For all episodes or to get in touch, just visit cleansailors.com. We love to hear from you. We believe that great ideas should be shared, which is why our podcast is free to appear on. So if you've got a project, idea or topic you think we should be discussing, get in touch. In the meantime, thank you for listening and see you for the next episode.